This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. to Baseball at BBQ, episode number 75. I'm Jeff Cohen. I'm here with my fabulous co-host. Len Aberman. Len, how you doing? Oh, Jeff, I'm so glad we made it to 75. 75 wonderful episodes. We released the Jay Harwitz as our special bonus episode, the last one. So really, this is three weeks in a row that we have an episode coming out. That's right. This is going to be a great episode. Before, before we get into it, let's just tell people we've got Chad Ward, part two. Yep. I've heard so many people have enjoyed Chad Ward, part one. And this episode, he has so many more stories, some crazy stories. You really have to, have to listen to some of these stories. Talks about, uh, I'm just going to say, there's a story that involves a bear. Ah. Can we just tease it with that? Sure. Okay. And then after Chad Ward, we're going to be celebrating the 2020 World Series champions, Los Angeles Dodgers, by talking to Jason Turnbow, who wrote a book, They Bled Blue, talking about the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, Fernando Mania and all that. But do you remember 1981? It was also a shortened season. The Dodgers happen to win World Series in shortened seasons. Hey, hey Mike, you know what it is? Less games. <laughs> Something about less games. That's okay. They, you know, they, they win. But they also did win in 88. They did. A full-length season. They so did. They, they short seasons, full-length seasons, whatever it is. I don't want to forget to mention some very wonderful companies that we think are terrific is, of course, BaseballBBQ.com for grilling tools, baseball-related grilling tools, and accessories, some clothing items, and of course, FifthAndCherry.com for wonderful cutting boards. And Jeff, you know, as as we're talking about Chad Ward, who we know is uh, a very big part of Traeger pellet grills, and just to say, they are fantastic pellet grills. Fantastic product. Chad is a great representative. So I, I think everybody's really going to listen. So without further ado, let's get Chad Ward back on. You know, people love barbecue. They, they do. And of course, they love Traeger and they love the pellet grills. Now, let's talk about, and I don't even, there may be other athletes, but let's talk about your career 
as far as athletic uh, athletics. Yeah, you play college ball, right? Yeah, I, pl- I played a season of college ball. So going back, you know, I was never that God gifted athlete. But I will tell you what, my my dad, which I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, while right. not the greatest griller, my dad was a truck driver for. I get a little emotional when I talk about this, like thirty five years. So I mean, he got up every morning at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and he'd go work eight, 10 hours. But you better believe it. When that school bus was at the bus stop in front of our house, he had that station wagon loaded with my bat bag and a bucket of balls from the time I was six years old. And we went out, every, if we had a game that night in Little League, that's fine. My, my uniform was packed. We went out every single day in practice and he instilled a work ethic in me and he, and he was the first one to say chad you don't have the most god-given talent half the guys on this team have the most god-given talent the only way that you will separate yourself is working harder than the rest of them and that's exactly what we did every day we'd hit at least two buckets of balls about 10 years old we're out there just doing our same thing we do every day there's this guy out there with his son on another field. Well, they get done, and they come over, and they're kind of standing, leaning up against the stands, watching what me and my dad are doing. And so I go out there to shag, you know, put the balls in the bucket. Dad's going to drink water, and this guy stops and says, hey, sir, can I talk to you for a minute? He goes, yeah. He goes, I've got a son that's going to be coming in as an eight-year-old this year. I've seen you out here every day with your son. He's like, you obviously know what you're talking about. I'm in a situation where I can't coach my son. And my dad's like, well, well, why is that? And he goes, because I'm a major league baseball player. And he goes, really? And my dad, he goes, dad goes, I stepped back. And he goes, I looked at him. He's like, it's Joe Necro. (laughs) So he said, oh, I'm I'm so sorry, Mr. Necro. He's like, it's Joe. Don't ever call me Mr. Necro again, it's Joe. And so he's like, Okay, like, how can I help you? He goes, well, I want to see if I petition the league, can my son play on your team? And so at that point, Lance, which Lance had a little bit of time with the the Giants, I think he was a third-round draft pick. He's now the coach at our alma mater, Florida Southern College, here in Lakeland, head coach. And, And that was cool because Joe was so thankful that my dad let him coach him that when there were cool things in town, Joe would always take me to them. Like, there used to be a boardwalk in baseball here between where I live and Disney World. And I've been there. I've been there. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, boardwalk and baseball. So they would always have this big Pizza Hut celebrity softball challenge every year. Well, when Joe played for the Twins, Herbeck was there. Puckett was there. Got to meet and go to dinner with all those guys and hang out with them. So that was a cool spot of like my little league. And I'll tell you like that, that 10 year old year, it was, it was funny because I was one of those guys that I threw the ball harder than everybody, but I had just crappy enough control that nobody dug in the box. (laughs) I had a game that we won, you know, six inning game. We won three, nothing. I struck out all 18 and hit the three run home run to win the game. You know, so like, Growing up, like, I wasn't bigger than every kid. I just worked harder. And then I got hurt when I was 11. I, got, I just got, once again, should not have been in the game, was three for three, had a single, a triple, and a home run, 
and I wanted to double to hit for the cycle. And we're beating this team 9 nothing. So they put in this kid that throws really hard with no control, hits me in the ankle. I don't play for like nine months. Mm. And it took me probably two years to get back to where I was at. Then went on and played in high school. I had an opportunity to play at a high school that was much better than the one I was zoned for. But I was kind of one of those believers, like, you only get to do high school one time. You want to do it with your friends. It's not all about athletics. And my 10th grade year, we were 5-21. and 21. My 12th grade year, we were 23-5. and five. And it was all about just kind of trying to be the leader of that troop and go, all right, we're going to get better. You know what I mean? And then I played my first year of college ball. I remember – I was going back and forth with another guy at first base, and I was five. Well, in the in the program, I was six foot. In real life, I was five ten and a half, about one eighty five. But I could hit a lick and played really good defense at first base. Well, the guy that we switched back and forth with was six four, two thirty five. But if anything had rotation on it, man, he didn't know come here from second. I remember I had a ball game once. I went four for five, two home runs. One of them was a walk-off, and I'm sitting in the locker room. We would have scouts coming and talk to us after the game. And um, I remember one scout from the Red Sox came in, and he said, Chad, he said, what'd you go today? I said, I went four for five. I think maybe I had like six RBIs, two home runs. And he goes, you know what? He goes, you could probably do that every other day of your college career, and you'll make, never make it in the pros because you're – Five ten and a half, 185 pounds. Mm. And at that point in college, or even high school, college, I've been very gifted to be able to – grades always came easy to me. And I was kind of like, you know what? If that's the attitude, maybe I just hang this up and focus on my career and my education. And that's what I did. I went back to my high school, was an assistant coach, went to college full-time. But I still love and respect the game of baseball – and to me, if I were to walk, you know, if, if I were to go into the grocery store and see that scout today, I'd probably shake his hands and tell me, "Hey, don't waste a whole bunch of your time focused just on this." All right. Let me uh, let me ask you uh, about more recent endeavors of, of what you've been doing with Traeger. I see you have like a video series on YouTube. Do you do those like once a month? Are you still doing them? And uh, yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, so, so Trigger, when, when the pandemic happened, so Trigger, you know, before all this happened, we were such a on-site activation-type company, a lot of huge events, a lot of things like that, where our mantra is taste the wood fire difference. So we wanted to get the food in front of people, let them taste it. Well, obviously, can't do that this year. So it's like, hey, how do we still engage the audience? And so the first thing we came up with was Trigger Kitchen Live. So every Thursday, you know, we'll have one of our one of our ambassadors do a do a recipe, a couple of recipes, you know, teach you how to cook a full meal. And they have been amazing. I mean, I think I look back at my last one, it's 180, 200,000 views. So I usually am on every four to six weeks, but every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Trigger Girls Facebook, there is somebody teaching a recipe. And then we usually follow it up 15 minutes afterwards. Every week, I'll do a uh, debrief with the chef or the ambassador on Instagram Live. And it's been great for us. And that kind of morphed into something we've started doing here in the last two and a half months. 
called private table. So trade your private table. So you can go and you can sign up. It'll be you and no more than 15 people. We do a Zoom call like this and it's a private class. So hey, you can buy your own brisket and I'm gonna I'm gonna start to trim mine and then I'm gonna wait and watch you trim yours and give you instruction along the way. And the first couple were different for me because I, whether it go back to the baseball days or you know the hundreds of classes I've taught in front of people, I like to be able to read my audience. So when you're doing the first ones, the Trader Kitchen Lives, there's nobody to read, right? You've got, you may have a thousand people at any point in time watching, but you can't get their reaction. Right. The Zoom classes, you get a little bit of that, but it's not the same as being in person. You know what I mean? But I will tell you, I think both of those have been really smart for us as a branded trader. And I know been really fulfilling for people like myself that are, you know, ambassadors and spokespersons for the brand. Now, Chad, I know you mentioned, you said, you, you mentioned George Brett, Ken Griffey Jr. And you said for our podcast, because of course we're baseball and barbecue. Yeah. But you know, sometimes we, we deviate a little bit. I mean, yeah. we're New Yorkers, you know, so we, we don't stick to things, you know, we're, we're yeah. done. <laughs> so, <laughs> but wait, I'm going to, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I don't mean yeah. to. I was going to. I don't know. I don't know how much you guys or any of your, your, your listeners follow. You know, WWE wrestling. That's but, where uh, I was going. <laughs> Titus O'Neil was at my store today. Really? And so <laughs> I cooked uh, beef ribs and pork ribs for him. We cooked chicken together. I apologize. A couple times I've looked down at my phone. It's been him because he's. <laughs> Breaking in this Timberline 1300 tonight. Another one that for me was super awesome on the wrestling side was uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's the one. That's the okay. They, so, I, I was I wanted to go yeah. there. So I'll tell you the story behind this. So Steve traveled as much as I did. I always listen to his podcast because he had wrestlers on back from when I watched wrestling, and he would just have a blunt and he had Post Malone on. He so he kind of. Kept the wrestling thing, but also pop culture, he had a big tie into it. So I just cold emailed him from my trigger account. Hey, Steve, you know, thanks so much. Traveling a ton. Your podcast, Make the Flights Go By and the Drives Go By. I hear you talking about cooking your wild game on a Weber. I think I got a better solution. Here's my number. If you want to discuss, give me a call. Love to get a grill out so you teach you how to grill on. So I'm sitting here on my couch one night. It was a Saturday night. I was flying to San Diego on Monday to do a fishing trip for Trader. He calls me Saturday night. Hey, Chad, Steve Austin. I was like, hey, man, how are you? He's like, good. He goes, uh, I know it's short notice. Do you think you could I, – I, I've been researching Trader. Because one thing I've learned about Steve, like he researches the hell out of everything. I know it's short notice. Could you get me a – grill to Agua Dulce's California because he was about to start filming Broken Skull Ranch. So I just immediately go, yeah, 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 I can make it work. I can make it work. <laughs> and so I call our California territory rep and I'm like, hey man, I need a Timberline in LA like ASAP. Like you got a dealer, like I'm more than willing to send them extra to make up for this. But, and he goes, I think I got one. Let me call him. So Taylor, the territory tech at the time, 
he gets the grill, builds it, burns it in. We take it up there. And uh, Steve's like, man, I got an hour. I got an hour. I'm like, all right. So at that time, he was eating because he was doing TV super kind of keto. Like, hey, man, I'm just eating salmon and chicken. I'm like, all right. So I had the guy pick up salmon and chicken. We get there, roll it off, get it plugged in. I'm turbo cooking chicken and salmon. And about halfway into it, he goes, hey, man, Chad, why are you rushing so fast? And I went, because you told me I had an hour. He goes, no, man, you're co-. I tell everybody that. He's like, but you're cool. <laughs> I that all afternoon. I'm like, well, shit. You know, like, so I start dialing the temperature back, like, chilling out. And we just had a great time. And as I was leaving, he said, hey, man, if you're in L.A. when I get done filming, I know you travel a lot, let me know. I'd love to have you on my podcast. So maybe eight, ten weeks later, just happened to be in L.A. I was like, hey, I know you're done filming. Do you have any opening for the podcast? Like, Absolutely. And just a nice, nice guy. And for me, it was just so cool because he, um, I don't know, man, a guy you looked up to forever. Like, I feel like he shaped what WWF was during the Attitude Era. And, and, and just a great dude. And, and really enjoyed barbecue. Lo- you know, being a Texas guy, he, he loves talking about it. Just a, a really, really good dude. Nice. Yeah, there, there's a couple of there, there's a couple of stories. We're not going to keep you on all night, although we could. But <laughs> oh, hey, hey, guys, I got nowhere to go. I'm good. Man. <laughs> I, I got, wait, can you do that? Can you 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 know an officer and a gentleman? Yeah, uh, I got nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> I got nowhere to go. I got a I got my Tito's left and. My my phones are plugged into my uh, Jackery portable unit, so we're all good. We're we're good uh, to get. I wish Jeff and I we could go to our grills and we could we could have you uh, give us some lessons. Tell us you got to tell us the bear story. Oh, so all right. So is, is that Doug's question? The one no, you had to ask me? wasn't. I actually yeah. I found that give lots of reverence to the Barbecue Central show. We're yep. not proud. We know that is the granddaddy of barbecue shows. Greg Rampey. Yep. And I'll tell you something about Greg. Yeah. So Greg had done his show first. I had listened to every one of Greg's episodes. And when I decided to start to do my show, I called Greg. Because I had enough respect for him. And I said, Greg, look, I'm thinking about doing Whiskey Bit in the Pit. First, I want your blessing. He's like, Chad, he's like, absolutely, man. You watch my show every week. If you, he was, you'll end up having a great audience. You know, he's like, absolutely. What? And his next question was, what can I do to help you? What can I do to help you set up your studio? What can I do? And, and that just speaks volumes of Greg Rempe. I mean, and we're still, I mean, I've known Greg for over a decade mm-hmm. and uh, just a really, really solid dude. So the bear story. So I can't remember. I don't want this to sound arrogant, but we've top 10 the World Food Championship four out of the five years we've been there. So what happens is it's way different than any other barbecue contest. And it's one of the things I like about it is you compete in barbecue day one. And then if you finish in the top 10 in day one, you go on to day two, which is something not traditional chicken, ribs, pork butt, brisket. So... The bad thing about it is usually on night one when you're waiting for awards, barbecue's always last. 
because they want to keep as much of the crowd as possible. So you're usually a little heavy into the libations. We go up there, and let's say we finished. That year, we were, we came out of barbecue six. And I'm like, all right. And they're like, look, the one thing we're going to tell you is the theme is surf and turf. So we're going round about, what do we get? No, we were actually second. Sorry, we were second that year. So we're going into round two, surf and turf's the theme. And I remember going to the cooks meeting the next morning where they're giving us all the guidelines. And I'm somewhere bordering between still drunk and hungover. And just as a joke, I raised my hand and Wayne Lohman, which is like the KCBS or the World Food Championships official over barbecue. And I said, uh, all right, so servant term. I said, I need to know something. I said, uh, he said, it's an open category, right? He's like, yes, sir. Get yet. And I said, uh, what's the policy on bear? <laughs> and he goes, like, I said, I, said I, I, last night after we top 10, I contracted a bear trapper on Craigslist. And he's currently coming down with a whole bear, gutted, clean, that I'm going to cook running style, and then I'm going to put a perfectly cooked salmon in his mouth. That works, right? And Wayne's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it does. I guess it does work. And so I hadn't contracted anybody. I was just looking to have a funny story. You know what I mean? <laughs> my, my guys were already off at the grocery store getting tri-tip, and, and salmon, because we were going to do a salmon dish, and we did tacos. But And I keep on with this thing. Like, I'm pacing by the front gate, like, where is he at? Like, looking at my phone, like, calling my friends, like, hey, dude, I want you to, this should look like I'm getting real pissed at a bear trapper. You know what I mean? And so people are kind of like, what in the hell's going on? And so when I go on Greg's, story, Greg's show to tell the story, I'm like, man, I was like, look, two hours out, Thank God we had supplies. We just had to cook and turn in what we had. And I was like, Greg, the moral behind that story is never trust a bear trapper you met on Craigslist. <laughs> so that was the uh, that was the bear trap, the bear story, but probably one of the ones. And the fact that Greg made it an animation, right. uh, that was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, he was on this show. And, and again, like you say, just great guy. You know, he never, for the, for the most part, I will say any guests that we, I think one time we had a YouTuber that we asked to be on and uh, he said, well, how many downloads do you have? You know, like, would it be worth his time? But that was it. So like Greg never asked. He just said, sure. And we worked it out. Yeah. And came on. And, and so, yeah, terrific well, show. You know, I, I kind of look at that like that. That's one of those like what I said earlier, like, I'll never have a PR firm or I'll ne- like, man, this is just like, for me, this is fun. Right. You know, yeah. look, for y'all, I hope you get more than 50 downloads. If you don't, I'm not going to be pissed at you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you've had a great time. We're, we're yeah. talking about all of our passions. I mean, like I do this on FaceTime with my buddies and we get zero downloads. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, th- this is fun. We have a great time with it having you on and we're not done. We're not done yet. It just sounds like we're finishing, but having you on having, I have to thank before I don't want to forget. Sometimes I get, you know, distracted. I want to thank Doug Shining because he was on fantastic guy. And after we finished and, and you know how 
you were talking about, you know, you're, you're in touch with Ken Griffey and George Brett and all these people, right? Doug, it's funny. We're not really in touch uh, uh, much about barbecue. He yeah. loves baseball. And, yeah. and he's sending ideas back and forth. Just, just a great guy. But he said to us, he said, you have got to get Chad Ward on. He says, if you think I have stories, if you, think, <laughs> you, you have got to get him on. And Len, Len, you're supposed to ask Chad a question? Oh, yes. So this this is Doug's question. I mean, yeah, this is him. So I can only imagine. Let's go. <laughs> no, he it was I think it's pretty tame actually. He just says brown water or Tito's. Oh, so he so he's putting he's pitting old Chad against new Chad. So um I'll tell you so I was always a Crown and Diet Coke guy. And then I got – I'm still working on losing more weight, but I was about 145 pounds heavier than I was now. Mm. And I decided to take him to the keto diet. I'll never forget, I was doing an event in Austin with Tito's, and I had a bottle of, a bottle of Crown and a 12-pack of Diet Coke under the table. And when we go to break – I would top my drink off and kind of keep going about things. And we go to an after party after that with VPs from Tito's, this and that. And VP of sales goes, hey, Chad, I know you drink Crown. Still on our tab. Just tell him. I was like, no, you know what? Like, I'm going to get into this keto lifestyle. I hear vodka, especially Tito's, is great for it. Let me try one. And it was literally what I drink now. You know, Tito's and Seltzer. Damn, that is really good. So that's kind of when I made the migration from brown water to Tito's. But I will tell you, they're 1A and 1B. My daily driver, not daily, but when I just drink periodically, is Tito's and, and soda. But, like, if you're hanging out with a bunch of friends or I go out and see my girlfriend and her family, like, I love taking a great bottle of brown water and just, you know, sipping it, you know, neat. So I think there's still a place for both of them in my life, but Tito's is Tito's pretty damn good. <laughs> and I appreciate Doug asking that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tell a story about Doug real quick. So I don't know if Doug told you guys this, but I, I call him my barbecue dad. You know what? He just I just instant messaged him. This is how this show is. You know, we're yeah. we're just do it by the seat of our pants. You know what I mean? I said to him, we're on with Chad now. He says, awesome. Tell the old boy, howdy. He calls me dad. <laughs> yeah. So Doug, first off, I'm sure he went through his background on his interview. But I mean, he's a rocket scientist. I mean, guy was number one in his class at Texas A&M. And Texas a and is a pretty legit, legit engineering school. When Doug shows up at an event, He's got his little toolbox. Everything's in a drawer. And me, I approach it more as, well, we have an events team for that, and I've told them what we need for the event. And it's just my job to cook and, and preach the brand. You know what I mean? And Doug's like, hey, Chad, have you thought about this? Hey, Chad, have you thought about that? Hey, Chad, like, do we have this? Do we have that? And I'm like, all right, Dad. So literally that's how it started was, all right, Dad. And now it's just a term of endearment, like, I mean, him and his wife, Jen, great cooks, even more amazing people. But uh, anytime I get a chance and I have an event in Texas and I need help, 
he's the first phone call I make. You know what I mean? Chad, I want to ask you, going back to grilling, one more question about, about food. I mean, you you mentioned, you know, when you do competition, it, it's pork, it's ribs, it, it's brisket, chicken. What is something that is unusual for you to cook on the grill? Um, that's a gator. So I did a, uh, I've done a couple of gators. I did a uh, one at Trigger HQ that was cleaned and then stuffed it with andouille sausage, ground andouille sausage, and then sewed it up with bacon all the way around. If you dig deep in my Instagram, you can find that one, uh, which is Whiskey Bent BBQ for the listeners out there. I did one out uh, with Julie in south of Seattle. We did one uh, about this time last year. So gator, it's really good. Like a lot of people say it tastes like chicken. It kind of does, but it, but it's super delicious. A little bit more sweeter, a little bit more tender. I never had gator. Len, have you? No, but I said we're New York boys. It's very, I, I don't know that we could get gator in any of the supermarkets here. But I do know that Jeff's had, what, Jeff, you had rattlesnake? Yes. Right? Yes. So Jeff's, a little, Jeff's a little adventurous with, with what he'll eat. Yeah, well, that was in Arizona, and it did take, it tastes like chicken. It's amazing. Everything tastes like chicken. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's just a common denominator. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think we'd never eat chicken, or we just eat chicken. I don't know, but oh, that's so funny. Chad, you were mentioning Doug again, and and I just want to thank him once more. I I almost lost my train of thought, but I wanted to thank him one more time. I think it's fantastic. You came on on a Friday night. We greatly appreciate it, and we – I can't thank you enough for coming on. We can't thank Doug enough for helping us to get you. Tell us and tell all our listeners how they can find you, what you're working on, and let's sell some Traegers too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, first off, guys, go over to TraegerGirls.com. You can find we've got our private table classes there. Uh, if you haven't already, sign up for the email. We don't bombard you two or three a week. But it's letting you know about our Trigger Kitchen Lives, new recipes. Even on that same website, you can go over and there's about 1,300 recipes, a lot of video recipes. They're great. As far as me personally, you can go check out uh, whiskeybentbbq.com on social media, Instagram, Facebook, whiskeybentbbq. If you have any questions, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. That's the one I check the most. So if you have a question, I'll be more than happy to help you out. And Man, thank you guys so much. It's been a blast. Yeah. We really, we feel like our guests are like friends of the show. And I have to tell you, I feel like we made a good friend tonight. So Absolutely. I I feel the same way. And guys, we just scratched the surface. If if you're going to bring me back, you know. Oh, we're bringing you back. (laughs) If we have to come to Florida and drag your ass back here. (laughs) <laughs> you back. <laughs> well, if y'all come to Florida, maybe we'll just do it in Griffey's backyard. Who knows? All right. There you go. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Jeff's like, right. Jeff's thinking right now. Okay, let's see. Okay. Yep. Let's do that. How do we arrange that? Budget? What's our budget? Where are we at? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Chad. We really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, guys. I, I wish y'all a great weekend. And, uh, hey, y'all keep doing what you're doing. I think it's awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you very much, Chad. All right, see you guys. <laughs> Len, that was great, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Wow. What a storyteller he is. He's really, I mean, I, I don't think he should lead like the, uh, 
the children's storytelling hour at the library. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but he is really great. I'm so glad that we also got to mention, in, while talking to Chad, that we got to mention Greg Rempe uh, from the Barbecue Central show, which we, of course, think is a fantastic show. He certainly doesn't need our plug for that. I mean, he's got plenty of listeners. And also our friend, friend of the show, Doug Scheiding, who is just, uh, as Chad said, and we said during the interview, is terrific. So that was really, really uh, just a fun time with Chad. Looking forward to the next time that he comes back with us. Absolutely. And now let's hear from Jason Turnbow. With the, I mean, this is a great book. I mean, uh, any baseball fan should really read They Bled Blue. It's, you know, it's, it's Time Lasorda. It's Fernando Valenzuela. It's the whole cast and crew with the, in, the famous infield of, of Garvey and, and Lopes and Russell and Say. You know, they've been together 10 years. They win one championship. This is a, a great book. Take a listen. Our guest on Baseball and BBQ is an award-winning author of the books The Baseball Codes. Beanball, sign stealing, and bench clearing brawls, the unwritten rules of America's pastime. Dynastic, bombastic, fantastic. Reggie, Raleigh, Catfish, and Charlie Finley's Swinging A's. And his latest book, They Bled Blue. 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the weirdest championship baseball has ever seen. Well, not including this year, I guess. <laughs> it's going to be way weirder this year. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> He has written for Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. We are pleased to welcome the baseball and BBQ to talk about his book, They Bled Blue, a lifelong San Francisco Giants fan, Jason Turbo. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. This was a fantastic book. I, I can see I, I noted a lot of uh, pages that I want to talk to you about. Obviously, I won't get to all of them, but it was just fantastic. <laughs> either we can talk fast or we can stay here all night. I'm good either way. Okay, good. <laughs> what was the inspiration behind They Bled Blue? Well, you know, I, I've, I've got a few distinct criteria when it comes to conceiving a book like this. Uh, it, has, it has to be a team that matters. And in this case, the Dodgers won the World Series. That, that makes them matter, you know, on, on the face of it. There has to be a number of interesting characters and storylines. And this Dodgers team had Fernando Mania, first and foremost. It was, it was also the first championship for Tommy Lasorda. It was the last season together for the storied infield of Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and Say. I mean, there were, there were a, lot of, a lot of things going on that year that made it very interesting underneath the surface. And probably most importantly, there has to not have been a book written about that team in that year previously. And, and this, this story fit, you know, ticked off every box as like, um, like, like you say, I'm a, lifelong, I'm a lifelong Giants fan. I got to experience that team firsthand. In 1981, I was 11 years old. The Dodgers were very good. The Giants were very bad and had been for a very long time. They were more or less terrible during my entire childhood. So all we had as San Francisco fans on which to hang our hats during that era was, was more or less beating the Dodgers. I mean, we, we never won games, and we certainly never really actually did beat the Dodgers. But we, you know, we dreamed about it. That was more, more realistic than actually winning a pennant. So, so I paid a lot of attention to those Dodgers teams, uh, and it was nice to see them from the perspective of 40 years later, whatever it is, and also as a professional. You know, I did not write this book as a partisan. I wrote this book as a journalist. 
So exploring, exploring any, any story truthfully involves positives and negatives. Uh, and, you know, I, and as I found out, there's, there's a lot of positives about this Dodgers club, you know, as, as well as, you know, a, a few interesting negative stories we heard too. It's, you know, it's, it's a well-rounded group of guys, which makes it all the more interesting. It, they had, they were a team of, I would say, a lot of characters on that team. Absolutely. And the biggest one of all, you know, tell us about Pamela Sorter and his brand of uh, celebrities that uh, come in and have the clubhouse. Yeah, I mean, Tom, Tommy was made for this job. He really was, uh, you know, and, and he didn't know it at first. I mean, he's a lifelong Dodger. He joined, he joined the organization back when it was in Brooklyn as a, as a minor league pitcher. He got a couple of cups of coffee with, with the Dodgers and with the Kansas City Athletics. Um, but he spent the vast bulk of his pitching career at AAA for the Dodgers in, in, in Montreal and really fell in love with the organization and the way it was run. And he, he learned about the way it was run. Um, you know, a, as a veteran minor league pitcher, he handled, he handled running the Royals, the AAA Royals, in ways that most players did not get to do. I mean, he served as a traveling secretary. He was all but an assistant coach. Uh, and so when his playing career ended, it was a natural move into scouting. And, and then it was another natural move into minor league managing, which worked out really well for him because as a minor league manager, he shepherded most of the guys who ended up winning that 1981 championship, or many of them anyway. You know, right. he, he took the 1974 World Series as the third base coach then, and then the 77 and 78 World Series as the manager once he took over for Walter Alston. He stepped into that role in an overt fashion. When he was that third base coach, he got more ink than Alston did as a manager. I mean, he, you can find old YouTube clips of him shimmying and shaking and urging his players on from that third base coach's box in a way that you just don't see coaches do now. And, and people said, oh, well, once you take over the managerial role, you got to tone it down. <laughs> he had no interest in toning it down. Tommy Lasorda does not tone it down. Uh, and it worked. I mean, he, he, ma- he made it play in ways that his critics never thought would be possible. He, he loved holding court in his office after games. He would invite the press in there, but he would also put the post-game spread in there. So the players had to come in too. And then he had all his celebrity friends in there from you know, the, the LA, you know, A-list movie star circuit. And that's its own story. I mean, he, he figured out that celebrities, movie stars were as delighted to meet him as they were to, as he was to meet them. And he leveraged that for all he could, you know, up to and including the biggest star he could find, the guy he idolized most, Frank Sinatra, became, became a regular in the, in the L.A. clubhouse. And it was a red carpet lifestyle that he loved and, and fostered and never gave up. Speaking of Frank Sinatra, it was a great story in the book tells of when Jerry Royce went into the room, into the office, and said, uh, and I guess Tommy's went to introduce him, and he asked, oh, what's your name again or something? And I actually communicated with Jerry Royce today. And he actually told me sometimes bad decisions make great stories. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the story is that like Tommy loved to introduce his players to, to the celebrities and, and Royce had his turn to meet Sinatra. And he said he saw him you know, through this thicket of, you know, body men that, that Sinatra traveled with his, 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 his posse. He's there face to face with the most famous guy on the planet. He looks down and says, I'm sorry, I didn't get the name. And Lasorda was just beside himself. He's like, not to Frank, anybody but Frank. I think it's funny because Don Rickles is mentioned in the book. There's a great story about him. And I think also as an aside that Don Rickles did something similar to Frank Sinatra. I think it was Don Rickles. There was some, I think when 
for you went out to the mound making pitching no, well, yeah but in this book what i'm saying is but there's something else where don rickles met frank sinatra in a club or something i think it was don rickles and he he made it like i think he was eating and i think frank sinatra came over to see him or something and he's and he says you know i'm, I'm with a date not now <laughs> and there was nobody that could do that to frank sinatra other than don rickles you have to have massive chutzpah to get away with yes that. yeah <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned some very good stories in there, but I love that Don Rickles goes out to Tommy Lasorda has Don Rickles go out to the mound. He does. I mean, this was when Lasorda realized he might have pushed it too far. I mean, he, he okay. invites celebrities to come out to the clubhouse all the time. He had the brainstorm. Well, if we can get him in the clubhouse, why not get him on the field? He actually dressed Rickles in a Dodgers uniform because regulations limit the number of people on the bench who are not in uniform. And late in a game, actually had Don Rickles go out and visit the pitcher. And then the story that Rickles ended up telling for years and years was he went out to make a pitching change and, and the pitcher was you know, baffled. <laughs> then the reality was it was late in the season. It was September. The, the Dodgers had already clinched and, and it was a meaningless game. He went out to just have a mound visit. <laughs> to a pitcher who had, was, he was equally baffled as he would have been at the pitching change in the offing. But there was no pitching change. It was just a quick visit. And, and at that point, the Dodgers front office realized, you know, he might be taking things a bit too far and, and issued the ultimatum, like, never again. <laughs> this has to stop here. Eventually, ball dudes, like whatever the equivalent of you know, the ball dudes in San Francisco are now, he, he would dress like Tony Danza and other celebrities to, you know, to collect bats and, and, and freshen up ball buckets and things like that, but but never sent one out again. Yeah, a, a real character. The biggest character in the in the nineteen eighty one season. I should have, maybe maybe not characterize him as a character, but the biggest name, biggest star that come out in nineteen eighty one was obviously Fernando Valenzuela. And you went into the book of how this guy was discovered, and I never knew it was the guy behind home play with the hat, with the gut, with these speed gummies. The actually the guy who spotted him. Yeah. If you're of a certain vintage, and I've, both of you are of that vintage, as I'm yeah. you could not watch a Dodgers game in the 80s and, and most of the 90s without seeing that guy in the Panama hat with a cigar right behind home plate holding a radar gun. Right. Dapper guy with a mustache. That guy was Mike Brito. He was, he was one of the team's primary scouts, especially in Latin America, and, and he was the one who found Fernando by accident on a scouting trip to, to find somebody else mm-hmm. uh, and, and brought him to America and, and, and shepherded him through what, you know, it was a, a pretty rocky road for a, a, basically, a, you know, a, a 20-year-old kid straight off a, a dusty truck farm in, in rural Mexico who spoke no English, who'd never really left the country before to, to suddenly be on a major league ball field. It, it was not an easy transition. Fernando handled it very, very well, and, and Brito was there to help him through it. Jason, I was going to say, usually, usually when we have uh, games that matter, where we, Jeff somehow was at the game or something. But in this case, when Fernando Mania was going on and he came to play the Mets, I think it was like, I think he was either 5-0 and or 6-0 and at the time, came to play the Mets. And I'm just a little older than you. And I actually went to that game. It was a Friday night was unexpected. We didn't even have tickets. I think a friend of mine, his mom said, you know, you guys want to go to the game? 
And luckily, it wasn't sold out, but it was for the Mets, considering that they were drawing, you know, flies at the time. They packed the stadium. We were sitting way up in the bleachers, and it was incredible. I still remember bits and pieces of it, but I was there for Fernando Mania, and it was it was great. Yeah, and you were there for for the heart of it too. I think I think you're right. That might have been his fifth victory. It, it, ultimately, over the course of his first eight starts, he went eight and zero. Nine innings every single time. He gave up a total of four runs over seventy two innings. His ERA was zero point five. It might have been that game in, in Shea Stadium where he went three for four to pushing his batting average up to about four fifty. Like, it, like there was nothing this guy couldn't do. And New York was really the first test for him. Right, he, he he opened the season opening day in L.A. against Houston, which was a very good team. Had had a, a couple of starts against the Giants and Padres, and were not very good teams. And then suddenly, everyone had to had to know how is this guy going to respond in in the biggest media market in the country. And Leroy Neiman was there at Chase Stadium to paint his portrait. That's that's how big a start this was. This, this is a twenty year old kid. He'd made four major league starts to that point, and and he couldn't have received more attention. And the fact that he held up under that withering media glare, not just in New York, but everywhere he went in front of, you know, sometimes it wasn't sold out crowds. Sometimes at places like Shea, you know, there, there were empty seats, but he was doubling their regular attendance that they would have. More than that. I think he right. tripled that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he, he held up like a, cha- like a champ. That guy had ice water in his veins. You know, he, he, he ended up going to visit the White House where Mexican President Jose Lopez Portillo was in town. So he actually met two presidents in, in one go because Ronald Reagan was there as well. And he came back to LA and people were asking him about it. He's like, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> no big deal. Like nothing affected him. And, and that's, you know, that's partly why he was such a good pitcher. Yeah. I was looking at his record today and he, he, he was a fantastic pitcher for that, that 1981 season. That was just, he said he started at eight. No, I think he ended up 14 and seven or 16 and seven. He won the, won the Cy Young Award. It was just an amazing season for him. Although he had a lull in between, he just came back and uh, was able to, you know, put the Dodgers on his back and they win the World Series. Yeah, his first taste of the big time. And, yeah. and he, did, he did have a lull in the middle of the season where he had a number of starts that were, were pretty awful uh, consecutively. Opponents started to figure out, Fernando's outpitch was a screwball right. that, that, that he learned from Bobby Castillo. And, and the Dodgers reliever, its power over the first eight games was that it would dive out of the strike zone and guys would chase it. And, and as soon as opponents started realizing that, they would just hold layoff. And it took him a few games to realize he could bat guys off the plate with his fastball and then keep the screwball in the strike zone. So if they took it, it would be a strike. And as soon as that all clicked, he was back to being as dominant as he had been at the beginning. Right. Dominant was definitely the, the word there. 1981 was, we know, as a, a strike-shortened season. What was great about your book, because I, I love baseball history, I know Len loves baseball history, a lot of things I did not know that happened during that strike-shortened season. I know the uh, Dodgers didn't have the best record, I think the Reds did, and, but they didn't make the playoffs because of the split season. But let's talk about the strike a little bit. And I always thought Garvey was the, you know, the star of the Dodgers, you know, the all-American look, the... Uh, you know, the smile, the great wife and all that. I had no clue that he actually got paid during the strike. That was, floored me. Floored me. Yeah. yeah. Well, floored a lot of his teammates, too. Yeah, right. There, there was contentiousness between Garvey and his teammates for a number of reasons, most of which having to do with the fact that 
in, in their eyes, he positioned himself as, as being above them. And this was just another instance of that. And, you know, in, in Garvey's defense, he said, look, I can't help it if my agent did a smart thing at, when he signed my contract, getting in there, like in case of the strike, I'm still going to get paid. He didn't do it. He didn't, there was no demand made during the strike. This was already in his contract. Right. Daryl Thomas, something similar. So two right. doctors actually ended up getting paid. Garvey put the money he received in an escrow account just in case, just to try and make things better. It never really did. He, right. he, was, he was at a remove from his teammates in many, many ways. Yeah, and didn't know he was, had a contentious relationship with them. That really surprised me. And same thing with Lopes. He spoke out during the uh, strike season, and I guess other players didn't appreciate that. Yeah, well, I mean, all these guys during the strike ended up showing us kind of who they were in, in a compact picture. You know, Garvey was about image, and Garvey was about uh, perception and, and numbers. Not, not in any sort of evil way or, or malevolent way, but his, his teammates resented him for it. And that ended up being true through the strike. He got paid. Lopes was a cantankerous guy who never hesitated to speak his mind. That held true during the strike. You know, he, he didn't fully understand all the details therein, and yet he spoke out about them. And he spoke out against the union midway through. Actually, negotiations had come far enough where both sides thought they were going to reach an agreement within a day or two. Suddenly, there's Lopes mouthing off to a reporter about you know, what a crappy deal it is and how the union is terrible. The owner saw that as, oh my gosh, we've got an opening. They might be splintering. And everyone took back, went, went back two steps. <laughs> union leadership was not happy with Lopes. They sat him down. But again, as, as very true to his character, he listened. He realized he had made a mistake. He owned it. He apologized to everyone he needed to very publicly, and, and they moved on. I mean, Lopes, Lopes was, I think, a, a really solid character in that way. Right. Garvey wasn't the only one, though, that was getting paid that season. Of course, the one on the Dodgers, but there were others that, I think, what were there, like 12 others or something in baseball or, yeah. that were, they yeah, were getting some money. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I spoke to Steve Greenberg, the son of Hank Greenberg, who was Daryl Thomas's agent that year about how, you know, how would you know to put that kind of clause in somebody's contract? And he said, he said something like, that makes a lot of sense. They were so close to the advent of free agency, which came about in 1975, this is only six years later, that this, the uniform player's contract was not nearly sophisticated enough to anticipate any of this kind of stuff. It was all just vague. And he said, today he would never get away with putting in the terminology he put in that contract because it was so vague. But then no one knew to think about it. And so when the strike happened, it said, oh, Daryl Thomas is going to get paid. And, you know, in case of, I can't remember what the term was, but some, mm. some wide-reaching term. And it, it, it just worked. I, I'm old enough to remember the 74 World Series, Dodgers and A's in 77, 78, and, you know, obviously 81. And you mentioned the, the, the core of the infield, Lopes, Say, Russell, and, and Garvey. And I figured, okay, the, the, you know, 10 years together, not that bad. They could, they could be terrible. But I never knew how bad a shortstop, well, I don't know, bad, bad is the right word, but Lopes, uh, Lopes wasn't the, the greatest second baseman. He, he had throwing problems, so did Russell, so did Garvey for that matter. I was really bored by that. Just being on the East Coast, I didn't really see it, but I, I was surprised for them being the 10 years uh, and not the greatest defensive unit. That's true. was together eight and a half seasons, which it was more than twice as long as the next most durable infield in Major League history. 
Like that by itself is remarkable. Um, the Dodgers had you know, an operating philosophy in, in signing and developing players that Branch Rickey and Al Campanis referred to as coconut snatching, coconut snatching, wherein they would take a player at one position and then train him to play a different position in, if they needed it, right? So both Russell and Lopes had been signed as outfielders. Garvey had been signed as a third baseman. The Dodgers had plenty of outfielders. They needed middle infielders. Um, both Russell and Lopes were very athletic and, and ended up making that, that transition. <laughs> Neither of them ended up being particularly good fielders. Um, at their best, they were good enough not to hurt the Dodgers. But you, you would think with it, like, it's such a durable infield, they would be aces <laughs> with a glove right. up there. And they just weren't. Garvey made the, the switch because as a, a defensive back on the Michigan State football team, uh, he suffered a debilitating shoulder injury that really robbed him of a lot of his accuracy. And he came up with the Dodgers. I think he was their opening day third baseman early on, made many, many led the league in errors in, in something like 85 games, almost all of them throwing errors. You know, spent a lot of time in the minor leagues after that. It wasn't until they shifted him to first base where he was very capable. He was actually one of the better fielding first basemen in the league. Um, his, only, his only flaw being his height. He wasn't tall enough to reach you know, many of the throws that some of his contemporaries could reach, but he could pick, pick balls out of the dirt like nobody's business. And that, that was the saving grace when it came to, to guys like Russell and Lopes. Is, is Garvey saved their bacon a lot. Right. I love the term coconut snatching. I had never heard that term before. And I know you just mentioned it. So it's basically, it's putting you in a position other than what you came up with. Yeah, Branch Rickey came up with it. He was in the tropics and and saw, you know, a pair of locals picking coconuts. And one guy would scale the the tree and grasp onto his legs and pick the coconuts and drop them to the guy below until his legs fatigued. And then he'd descend and the other guy would climb the tree. And they just keep switching off. And and, and Branch Rickey built a whole organizational philosophy out of that. (laughs) Well... We follow the Mets, and the Mets are trying to do that now. It's not not working very well. No, no. <laughs> you got to have good athletes to, to do that. Jason, this book, I think it's a fantastic book. Great. I hope, I hope so many people, you're welcome. I hope so many people will go out and buy this book. But this book is actually two books in one because you've got, and, and I, I, I want a perfect example, and this isn't even a large part of it, but for anyone who's podcast listeners can't see what I'm holding up, but I'm holding up the book. There's the top part, which is the story, and you go into detail. And then there's footnotes, but it's, well, no, they're not even footnotes. What would you call them? Because there are so many things in here that then have either an asterisk or a little cross, and then you've got a whole story underneath. So this is like two books in one. and I. Th- and as I'm reading it, you know, it could take you, it didn't matter that it took a long time to read a page, but I don't want to miss a single thing. So I would go down to the bottom and the bottom, of course, is very small print, but the stories on the bottom are incredible. Well, I like one thing you had when I think you talked about Kingman's home runs and then you had Google it. <laughs> that, was, that was your comment. But there are just, so it's, it's two books in one. Yeah. I mean, I started with footnotes in Dynastic Bombastic Fantastic, which, which was the story of the swing and A's of the early 70s. Ended up playing this nascent Dodgers team in 1974 in the World Series. When I realized that there were so many great stories that didn't necessarily serve to propel the narrative. And that's, that's important to me. I, I, I don't want to get bogged down in anything. 
and, and flow is, is vital for a good book. As soon as my editor said, well, you know, cut this out. You shouldn't have it there. It was a, it was a reasonable comment. She said, but you could put a, you know, a few in footnotes if you want. And so I did that in, in the A's book. And by the time I got to the Dodgers book, I was just, I went hog wild. Like, <laughs> there are so many good stories. They are. They're a little bit redundant or just, you know, somehow interfered with, with the flow. Stick them in the footnotes, let them be told. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you appreciated them. Oh, I, oh I, I, I absolutely appreciated it too. I mean, some of them are really funny. Like the Jake Johnstone one with going for, I guess, the urine test and he's, he's, swallows the apple juice oh that was fantastically funny i was laughing so hard i didn't know he was such a prankster jay johnstone oh my god jay johnstone has written three books about his pranks and and, and you know i went to meet him uh at, at a restaurant in, in the la area he brought all three books and we sat there and, and he, he he read me excerpts from his own books <laughs> like, he, he he is a storied fellow and who's, who's done a, a lot of really off the wall stuff yeah one of the players in that in, in the book on the team, I mean, is Dusty Baker. Obviously, we know he's a, he was a great player, great manager. He's about to take his fifth team to the playoffs. But there's a line in here that is so true today. It floored me. I go, this is it really got got me. And it's actually it was his father who said it. And it was a quote: "A black man who hates a white white people and a white man who hates black people are identical twins." I go, that was that that's today. That's just a fantastic thing he said, and a good lesson to uh, partake to his son. Yeah, I mean, D- Dusty. I mean, Dusty has more respect than anyone I've ever met within baseball. You know, I, I ended up I covered him for many years when he was a manager of the Giants. It was true then; it's true now. And and he grew up in a, a very racially diverse community in Riverside, California, down in Southern California. Um, moved up with his family to the Sacramento area for high school in in a very white area. And it was, it was a shock to him. He had some adjustments to make. Somewhere along the line, he realized that, you know, he needed to you know, bond with, with more black people than he was. And he started holding it against the white kids in his, in his neighborhood, in his area. And that was when his dad came out with, you know, that little bit of philosophy. And Dusty recognized the truth behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he, he rode that as far as he could. I mean, Dusty was the unifying force on those Dodgers. He was the guy that everyone talked to in, in what could be a very divided, splintered clubhouse. He held it together. And in the, the typical clubhouses divide along typically racial lines, not intentionally, but, you know, a lot of times black guys hang out together and the Latino guys hang out together. Mm-hmm. Um, players tend to hang out together and position players. Uh, on the Dodgers, you had that, but you also had groupings of duration. Right, the guys who had come up together through the minor leagues, who had been there forever, were one unit. The the long time acquisitions, like Jerry Royce, like Dusty Baker, were another unit. And then you had the, the newcomers, mostly the rookies, first second year players, and those were distinct factions. And Dusty united everybody. He spoke Spanish, so so the Latin guys could talk to him. He he related to the black guys and the white guys. It, it was it was remarkable, and I think that that trait is part of what makes him such a good manager. The guy has charisma for days and, and, you know, he, he really is a ballpark philosopher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's he just absolutely terrific. Going to the world series. Uh, actually, let's go to the playoffs. Go ahead, Len. Go ahead. So I was just going to say, I wanted to go back to Tommy Lasorda for a, okay. for a minute. You know, Tommy Lasorda at times, there are, there are some managers, right. That are just 
as big as the game, as big as the team. They're not out there playing, but and Tommy Lasorda was that. And, and it's interesting because I always thought, you know, Tommy Lasorda, everybody loved Tommy Lasorda, but wasn't actually that the case with Tommy Lasorda. There were some people that, that weren't so thrilled with him. And, and I wonder if there were times when his, if he, his act may have worn a little thin. There absolutely were. I think the guys who were all business did not appreciate the, the overt shtick nature of, of Tommy Lasorda. Um, Don Sutton, in particular, you know, who, who spent the, the first part of his career in Los Angeles, really kind of cemented his Hall of Fame bona fides. He was all business, and he had no patience for Lasorda, which is one of the reasons he signed with Houston as a free agent in 1981. That said, Lasorda was, was you know, he, he was a motivator, right? He was an overt motivator. He was rah-rah uh, and yeah. in your face. And, and if you could deal with that, you appreciated him. And, and, and if you appreciated him, boy, he appreciated you. Like, that was a clubhouse where, you know, if you were Tommy Lasorda's friend, things worked out pretty well for you. Right. And, and if you weren't, you know, that's, those are the guys who did not appreciate him. Right. I was going to say, uh, in, in the playoffs, they played, remind me, the first half, they, 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 they won the first half of the strike shortened season, and, but they won the second half. They won the first half. First half. We had the, the, the way it worked, like, they, no one was positive there was going to be a strike. Right. So the Dodgers built uh, an enormous lead early on behind Fernando's amazing right. start. Burt Hooten had a, a great beginning to the season. And then they kind of fell into this swoon in, in late May, early June, where their lead was just chopped down seemingly a game at a time. Uh, and it, it was down to two and a half games when they went into St. Louis for a three-game series. They managed to win one of the three games while, while Cincinnati was roaring back. Like they, right. Cincinnati was on a crazy winning streak. At the end of that series in St. Louis, the Dodgers' lead was half a game. And that's when the strike was called. And, and it's, not, it's not unreasonable to think that if the strike was called literally one day later, the Dodgers would not have been in first place. Right. But it was called when, when it was, and, and they decided that, you know, with this, this giant multi-week lull in the middle of the season, the best way to reconcile it was to have, crown a first-half champion and a second-half champion thus giving us our first divisional playoff in baseball history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they said, okay, the first half champion will play the second half champion. Uh, and if it's, if it's the same team in both halves, then the second place team in, in the second half will, will, will take it. The Dodgers, by dint of being the first half champion, were allowed to coast through the second half. And they insisted that they wouldn't. Like, you know, Davey Lopes particularly was indignant. He's like, are you telling me that we're not going to go out and try and get hits or steal bases or mm-hmm. pitch well? That's ridiculous. We're professionals. And he was right. Of course he was right. Yeah. But what it did allow them to do was rest guys who needed to rest rather than, you know, force them to play. And, you know, a lot, a lot of rookies got starts late in the season that they wouldn't have gotten had there been an actual pennant race, especially after Ron Say went down. And in, in mid-September, Ron Say uh, had his arm broken by a pitch from... Francisco's Tom Griffin. The Dodgers were actually in first place at the time on position to win both halves, and they just took a nosedive in the standings after, after that, say, was, was that important to their success. And it, it didn't matter. <laughs> they were in the playoffs either way, so they just, they just leaned into it. And that's, that's when, you know, if you look at the box scores from the last two, three weeks of the Dodgers' 1981 season, you're going to see a lot of names you don't recognize. And they played Houston in that division playoff, and then they played Montreal. They played Houston, and they were down 2 nothing. And they came back and won three in a row. Right. 
that's man. They they found themselves in very deep holes in every round of playoffs. And, oh, yeah. and this is one of the fascinating things to me about that team is to a man, everyone I talked to on that 1981 team who had also been there in 1977 and 1978 said the 77 and 78 versions were better. We were a better team, then, but, but they lost. They lost to the Yankees, especially in 78. They won the first two games of the World Series then lost four in a row. Right. And they took those lessons to heart. So even though they went down two to nothing to Houston in that first round, in a best of five, mind you, right? It was do or die from, from game three on. They knew what it took to win, and they were battle-hardened in a way that a champion has to be battle-hardened. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they never let it get them down. I mean, they, they got back to Los Angeles after the second game. The first two games were in Houston. The plane lands. Lasorda finds Steve Garvey on the plane says, hey, come out to dinner with me. Yeah, I like they, this story. They go to a restaurant in Los Angeles, and waiting there for them in a private booth is, is Frank and Barbara Sinatra. Chairman of the board. Chairman <laughs> of the board. And they're having dinner with the Sinatras. And, of course, Frank says, okay, what's going on with this series? You're getting your butts kicked. And, and Garvey looks him in the eye and says, we got them right where we want them. And, and he wasn't just talking. They, they came back. They, they knew they played well in Dodger Stadium. They knew that the Astros did not play well in Dodger Stadium. And, and they, they just steamrolled Houston thereafter. And they did the same thing in Montreal. They went down big in, in a hole and, and had to claw back, this time in Montreal, right. culminating in, in what is still today known as Blue Monday. Blue Monday. Blue Monday hit the, the series clinching home run on right. a Monday. <laughs> and then poor Expos fans have, have a hard time getting over it. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, but that put them to the World Series where they go down again. 2 nothing to the Yankees. This time in Yankee Stadium. And they, they get back to L.A., down 2-0. And this story I found particularly uh, unbelievable. That Dave Rigetti was, I think, scheduled to pitch game three. And him being from California, he had had 20 tickets for the game, needed 21, the last ticket for his dad, who happened to play with Tommy or against Tommy in the minor leagues. And Tommy sort of ends up getting him a ticket to the game. <laughs> what, what, what a circumstance how that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it goes a long way toward showing Tommy Lasorda's nature. Um, of, co- of course he's going to do that. And word had to kind of filter its way over to him. You know, Rigetti was warming up. His dad is like stuck outside the stadium. Like one extra person showed up in the traveling party and he, he gave away his ticket. So, somehow it, word did get in and, and he was accommodated. But yeah, the, I mean, these are the kind of things you never hear about from the exactly. athlete that, that ball players have to deal with. Exactly. So they, uh, they're down 2 nothing, and they make this fantastic comeback. And to take us through the, the World Series. Uh, you don't have to go game by game, but t- tell us how they actually came back. And there's one story I want to get to in game six when, uh, when you get to there. Now you've now you got to make me think about which game was which. It's been a while since I talked about this World well, Series. Game three was the Rigetti, and, uh, and I think it was Hooten, game three. Yeah, I mean, what, the, the failure of the Yankees in this series was their bullpen. And it, it really was. They, right. I mean, they, had, they had lights out relievers all season long in Ron Davis. And they Gossage. just didn't come from uh, Gossage didn't melt down in the series, but he, he wasn't used hardly at all, right? In, in save situations, Bob Lemon held, held off until it was too late. You know, we now know in baseball that don't save your closer for the ninth inning if there's a high leverage situation in the seventh or eighth where it could really be 
useful. And, and that, that was the era when Gossage would pitch two and three innings regularly. He still wasn't used right. really as much as he should. I mean, that it was not Bob Lemon's greatest day <laughs> when it came to that World Series. We're talking about the Yankees manager, of course. And, you know, he, he pulled Tommy John in the fourth inning. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about, yes. I, when I read that, because I don't remember the actual play-by-play, what happened, when, when, I, when I read that, I said to myself, that strategy is never going to happen again. It, it can't. It, it, no pitch, you know, pitchers don't hit anymore. So that, that strategy was brilliant by, uh, by Tommy Lasorda having removed because he, he walked the, the eighth batter to get to, to, get to Tommy John. And uh, I guess Lemon said he needed some runs and pulled them. Yeah, Tommy, and Tommy John was, you know, as, as good a pitcher as the, the Yankees had. He'd already shut down the Dodgers once in the series. He was on his way to doing it again. And Lasorda baited Bob Lemon into pinch hitting for him in the fourth inning. He'd given up, I think, one run at that point. Six hits, but, you know, he, he was never in trouble. And, and it played right into Lasorda's hands. And, and the Yankees bullpen utterly melted down at that point. And it became a laugher and, and completely dispiriting for, for the Yankees. I mean, you're right. Like, they're not going to pull a starting pitcher after four because the opposition demands it now. They're going to pull a starting pitcher out of four because that's the way managers manage in the World Series now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is the – I want to remind everybody, this is this World Series where George Frazier lost three games. He, he famously lost three games. I think he had, what, a 15 ERA? It was yeah. up there, but – what do you do? I don't have it in front of me, but if you, if you look at those World Series ERAs, it's, it's, a, it's a dumpster fire for New York. Right, and they left a, a record, what, 55 men on base that series. Yeah, I mean, Dave Winfield went one for 17. One for 21 or something, yeah. 21. Yeah, it, it was so bad for Winfield in the big free agent acquisition uh, that, that when he got that hit, he actually asked for the ball. Right. I mean, his teammates were kind of razzing him from the dugout, get the ball, get the ball. I think it was Royce on the mound, and Royce heard the mask for him. He's like, okay. He had no idea like, why Winfield wanted like a single. It was a base hit in the World Series. That was the World Series where uh, Steinbrenner called him Mr. May because he went one for 21. Yeah, George did not respond well either. He issued the public apology to his fan base right. afterward. Um, in the middle of the World Series, he said a, a kid in an elevator punched him. Right. No one ever saw the kid who punched him, and he – he told a story about knocking the kid out and he was like in an elevator with three guys and he was, he was knocking him down left and right and ended up with his hand in a cast. It was a big distraction, which might've been the point to kind of right. get the team's mind off what was going on, but not a single shred of that story was ever verified by anybody. Right. Look, if you believe in karma, it was time. It was time for the Dodgers to get back to the Yankees, back at the Yankees. And you mentioned in the book about, you know, Winfield, he lost the most money in the strike. Of course, because he was making the most, but he lost over three hundred, close to four hundred thousand in that strike. He was losing like seven thousand plus a day, so he was the highest paid player in baseball. So I, I, I understand, you know what what Steinbrenner was saying, you know when he called him out. Of course, this, this was the big year. He got to pair Winfield and Reggie Jackson in the same outfield, and right. you know ultimately it didn't work. But then you bring up an interesting part about that strike because guys like Winfield could ride out the strike. He didn't have to worry about you know, paying the mortgage. You know, Dusty Baker had plenty of money. He had just built a house that he was actually a little worried about paying for. But guys like Dave Stewart on the Dodgers, the rookies, the guys who had no, no liquid capital to their name and, and small salaries, had to actually go out and get jobs. 
You know, mm-hmm. Stewart in his rookie season had to go get a job in a, in a nuts and bolts factory, packaging nuts and bolts. And, you know, the real reason he was hired was to make public appearances, but he actually went to work. Another, uh, another big name in, in the, uh, on, on the Dodgers was Reggie Smith. Talk about how his contribution uh, on the team, because he, he was a well-respected player as well. He was, and, and you can tell exactly how well-respected he was on that team by the fact he barely played. He had injured his shoulder the season earlier, had hoped it would be fine by spring training. It was not fine. The guy could not throw. Like, he literally couldn't throw a baseball. He was, he was so hurt. He could swing a bat. And so he made pinch hitting appearances exclusively until the last, I think he played first base for a few innings at the very tail end of the season. But other than that, he was exclusively a pinch hitter, did not do very well in that role, had almost no power, and still ran the clubhouse. You almost never see that. Like, it has to be the star players who Mm -hmm. command that kind of respect. But Reggie Smith did it. Um, what what he what he said went, and and he helped keep people in line. Like he he would tolerate no monkey business from anybody once you know, if they started to get out of line, and that that really helped keep the Dodgers focused when they needed it. Right. In fact, uh, in in spring training, he tells a story where Dave Stewart couldn't throw a strike. He was hitting Ryan Say and and Steve Garvey, and he walked off the mound with his head down low, and goes in a clubhouse. And, and Richie Smith said, "The only thing you did wrong was you put your head down. You tried your best." Keep your head high. Yeah, that didn't happen in the clubhouse. That that happened in 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 uh, Dodger Town at Vera Beach, right. among the bungalows. Stewart Stewart had it had been eating him up all day. You know, he he wanted to go impress people, and he ended up drilling a bunch of the star players. And Lasorda was screaming, "You know, get off the mound before you kill my guys!" And 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 he was he was beside himself. And he walked by an open door where a group of players you know, were in one of the bungalows, including Reggie Smith. And Smith said, "Hey, Stewart, get in here." this is what you did wrong. You left the mound with your head, head low. I never want to see you do that again. You're a major league pitcher. You're here for a reason. You go do what you do. And I mean, it's, it's sage advice. I mean, veterans have been telling that to rookies time in memoriam, but this, he, this was when he really needed to hear it. And it made a big difference. Right. Jason, you put so much into this book. Um, it's amazing that as you're reading this, it's like, if this is just one season, I mean, think about it. Everything that happened with Fernando Mania, the strike, and the development of all these different players, and, and, and the great thing is you're reading about players in the beginning of their career, like a Dave Stewart, a Dusty Baker, the incredible Dodger infield. I, I, I read this and I think this, this couldn't have just been one, one season's worth. This had to take place over a couple of years. It's amazing that this is all in one season. Yeah, you can pack a lot in. And, you know, part, part of the, the, the fun for me in writing a book like this is to tell an appropriate story, you have to set the appropriate scene, which means going backward to talk about, well, how did coconut snatching come about? How did the Dodgers enact that? What were their minor league teams like when all these guys were playing together? What did that mean for them once they reached the major leagues? What's, what's this guy's backstory? Like, there, there, there's a lot of table setting that goes on that I think, you know, if, if, if you leverage it properly, you can really use it to serve the storytelling. Yeah. The book is called They Bled Blue, Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the Weirdest Championship Baseball Had Ever Seen, the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. What came out of the strike that season was the agreement where they have a player compensation pool for teams that lose free agents. At the time, I was 15, 
I was 19 years old, big Mets fan. You know, I'm just saying, hey, just play ball. I didn't know about the all the, you know, the, the issues with the owners and the play. I just wanted to play ball. So I said, like I said, the compensation pool came out of this, this strike. Two years later, when, when my favorite player, who recently passed away, Tom Seaver, was on the Mets, he was snatched up on, for that player compensation pool. And I'll never forgive the Mets for, for keeping him, you know, unprotected. In the Mets had, they, they thought, who's going to want a 39-year-old pitcher with, with barely any time left who's making more money than, than he probably should because he's a legend? And sure enough, <laughs> someone wanted him. And right. he ended up winning, you know, 31 games for the White Sox over the next two years, something like that? Yeah, to go win his 300th game with another team. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. It, it's so hard to be a Mets fan. <laughs> <laughs> we know, but you know what? A new dawn is here. Hopefully better, better team on the horizon. Jason, please tell people where they can get the book uh, and, and anything you want to plug, the social media, anything that people can reach you. Absolutely. You can book anywhere, anywhere books are sold, including at the Pandemic Baseball Book Club website. Uh, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club is something I helped found this April when, it, when, when I realized that myself and a host of other baseball authors had promotional appearances scuttled due to the pandemic. Uh, so we started doing it online. We have fostered a really interesting community. Uh, and, and as of next week, we are officially joining Sabre, uh, the Society for American Baseball Research, as, as kind of an, an autonomous wing of that organization. Depending on when this podcast is dropping, we're, we're having a, a live conversation on Wednesday, September 23rd with uh, the editors of Sabre's 50 at 50 book. Uh, armor and and Leslie Heafy and, and Bill Nolan. It's going to be great. Go to pbdclub.com for information on that. Personally, my first book was The Baseball Codes, about baseball's unwritten rules. I've been blogging about that topic continuously since the book came out in 2010. Uh-huh. I've got a decade-plus worth of, of material on baseballcodes.com. I'm updating it all the time. Check me out there and, and on Twitter at Baseball Codes. Excellent. For the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, let me ask you, it's going to keep going, for an ongoing endeavor going, uh, going forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we're, our eyes are on next spring when we have a new batch of baseball books, but we, we have a, a bunch of plans in the works over the winter to kind of integrate authors with, without new baseball books. And you always have other things going on on that website. I'm on it all the time. You have a, you should, everybody should really sign up for the newsletter. You tell where there's a too often to be talking podcast, you know, doing a podcast or a video, and they're, they're talking, and it's just that's a wonderful website you guys came up with. Kudos to you. I, I know uh, Brad Uchlian and Anini Kork, or I guess the co-founders. I don't know who else was involved in, it, but it was uh, just terrific. Yeah, we do have we do have swag. Ah, uh, yep. Coffee mugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's good stuff. We are, uh, as you know, baseball and BBQ. Big supporters of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. We've had many of the authors on, and we're still, it, it seems like it's a, a long list, and we keep having you guys on. We love having you guys on. We're happy that we're a, a site that you guys can promote your books on. We will do whatever we can to promote your books, to promote your product. We're sorry that it has to be this way, but we are glad to be a place for you guys to promote your book. So thank you. Well, we love that. you guys. <laughs> I appreciate you having all of us on. 
And, you know, it, it is sad that it has to be this way, but I don't, this never would have happened otherwise. And, you know, part of, part of our long-term plan is how to transition into a post-pandemic world and do live events and actually interact with people in person. Well, we wish you all the best with that. Thank you for joining us, Jason. We really appreciate it. Great talking to you guys. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. And I want to thank Jason Turnbull for joining us. That was, uh, you know, <laughs> very entertaining. Really, yeah, really yeah. enjoyed that, really, that interview. Yeah, you know, Jeff, we, of course, have a, a lot of authors on. As it was said during the interview, Jason Turnbow is from the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, which we are very strong supporters of. We hope that everybody goes to their website, gives them their support. Their books are excellent. You've heard many interviews on our show with the authors. But when, when you're talking to Jason, the stories about that team and the history, I, if you are a baseball history lover, how could you not, whether you hate or love the 81 team, and of course, I'm sure there are a lot of Yankee fans that are not big fans of that team. But you know what? You can't win every year, okay? Said, said from a Met fan, right? Right. <laughs> okay? But you, you just can't. It was the Dodgers' time. But that team, there are so many stories. You know, some years I think you get teams that win a World Series. They win. They move on. The next year another team win. In history... There are so many things that went on with that team. The, the great infield, like you said. Fernando Mania. I, Fernando Mania. Guys. Yeah, Fernando Mania. You, you, to be a, a baseball fan during that time of Fernando Mania, the guy was amazing. And to watch him play, fantastic. So the whole season was great. Absolutely. Was great. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Jason. And if you enjoy these interviews... Give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Tweet us, we're at baseballandbbq. We're on Instagram, baseballandbarbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. We're on Facebook, and we also have a website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Jeff, on the way out, let me just say, in December, you and I are going to be celebrating three years doing this show. Three glorious years. Yes. And I'm asking whoever wants to, to give us a, an email, to give us a phone call, and wish us a happy anniversary. Yes, I'm, I'm fishing. I want happy anniversary. We would love to hear from you. And a great so, anniversary gift would be, uh, you know, just rate and review us. That, yes. we, we'd love that. And subscribe to the show. Subscribe to us. And now, Jeff, let's wrap it up with none other than the musician and the poet, Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski with their beautiful song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks you. for listening.